We are jumping forward in our series, which is a series about covenants. And covenants are arrangements that God set up with His people. We looked at various covenants. We looked at the covenant with Adam, uh, a covenant of life. We looked at the covenant with Noah, a covenant of preservation. We looked at the covenant with uh, Abraham, a covenant of promise. We looked at the covenant with Moses, the covenant of law. And now we're jumping all the way up to 2 Samuel. It's on page 287 uh, in the Bibles that are available to you. We'll be looking at 2 Samuel 7, 1-17. And you will be helped uh, by having a Bible in front of you. We'll be referring to this and a number of other verses, some of which I'll have up on the screen here. 2 Samuel 7, 1-17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to live in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from this time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house." When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your, own, your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Being an American, I guess, I don't get the whole attraction of monarchy. I've never watched one of those royal weddings, uh, and I, I don't understand why Meghan Markle's closing a car door is newsworthy, and why that blows up the internet, because she made the tremendous mistake of closing a car door. Yeah, I, I, I don't get these sort of things. I don't get the attraction. I don't get the fascination with monarchy. However, after chaotic mismanagement, and after multiple foreign invasions of a country, 
I could see why countries sometimes get attracted by having a strong man or a strong woman to lead, why they fall into dictatorship or why they are attracted to monarchy. Well, that's exactly what happened with Israel. We have seen through this brief series how God called Abraham and he brought him out of Mesopotamia. He made him his own and he gave, them, he gave him great promises and said that he would become a great nation and that through him all the nations would be blessed. And then we saw how that happened, that the people descended into Egypt and in Egypt, while they were in Egypt, they became a great nation. And then through the leadership of Moses, they came out of Egypt Through the leadership of Joshua, they invaded the promised land. But then they fell into this period, and it's called the period of the judges. These were strong men, and sometimes women, that God would raise up. Uh, And some of them were noble, some of them were not so noble, but it was a very chaotic time. It was a time of being oppressed by enemies, and uh, then having God raise someone up, and then being oppressed by enemies again. Very chaotic, very unstable. And so after that time, the people said, You know what we need? We need a king. All the other nations around us have a king. We need a king. And so they were attracted to this idea of monarchy. And so God gave them what they asked for. And He gave them a king named Saul. And he turned out to be pretty good at first, but he turned out to be a disaster. And then God raised up a king, a man after his own heart. And that's the one we meet today. And that's the famous King David. Now, the story as we pick it up today uh, finds King David living in a house. Living in a house, we don't know about the construction of it, but it looked like a fine house apparently. And it says that he had had rest from all his enemies. Look at verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, this is just a, a very brief mention here. But what we have here is the culmination of 800 years of promise. We can go back 800 years to the promises to Abraham. And if you were here for that sermon, you remember that he said, God said that he would give Abraham that land. Guess what? They finally have it. So this is, this is a big deal. Uh, when it just says very briefly, when the Lord had given him rest from all the surrounding enemies, that's the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham some 800 years prior. And it's also a fulfillment that they would have peace. God had promised that once they got into the land, once they conquered it, they would have shalom. They would have peace. We can look at a verse from Deuteronomy, and you see how this is promised during the time of Moses, some 400 years before the events of what we're looking at today. If you look at Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, it says, But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and when He gives you, what's it say? Rest from all your enemies around you, so that you live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make His name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, burnt offerings and so on. This is when you have rest from all your enemies, what is the Lord going to do? He's going to establish a place, a place where they would bring their offerings. A tabernacle. Because up to this point, they had this tent, the, the, the tabernacle that they brought out of uh, Egypt, and it was going to be replaced by a temple. So the tabernacle was this tent, and it had long since rotted away. But where was, if we go back to our text, where was God dwelling, as it were? 
um, he was still in a tent. Uh, and what does it mean by God dwelling in a tent? Well, there was this Ark of the Covenant, and this was the place where sacrifices were made, and this was in a tent. And David said, now wait a minute, I know the promises of God. He said that when we have the rest from all our enemies in this land, what's God going to give us? He's going to give us a place, a permanent place to have a temple, a house for His name where sacrifices will be offered. So David put two and two together, and he said, he was also kind of embarrassed apparently, that he was living in a house, and God's ark was in a tent. So he says, I know what I'll do. I'll build a house. And Nathan says, well, that's right. God is with you. He favors you in all that you do. And you're reading the signs right. Because, because God promised that once you had rest, He would do this. So you're at the right moment. You're the right man for the job. That's how it starts. However, that night, God appeared to Nathan to set things straight. Nathan simply supposed... And by the way, this is the first time we meet Nathan the prophet. He plays an important role later on in David's life, but this is the first time we meet him. And uh, God set him straight here. In verse 4, verse four it says, That same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? And this is even stronger. There's no real good way to do this in English, but, but uh, maybe there is, but uh, the Hebrew starts with the word you. So I guess the, a stronger way to say this would be, you would build me a house? So you see, he's putting David in his place here. He's, he's indicating that, no, uh, you are not the one, David, to build this house, and you are not the one to take initiative here. Because if we look back at Deuteronomy, who takes the initiative? God takes the initiative. And He says, you will build me a house. And uh, then He goes on and says, did I ever ask for that? Did I ever request a house? Uh, six Verses 6 and 7. He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places that I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? So two points. He says, you're not the one, David. And by the way, I didn't ask for this. I never asked for anybody to build me a house. This fact serves as a reminder to us that we need to be careful uh, about how we worship God. We might have ideas and say, well, now this would be a really cool way to do this. This would be a really innovative way to take initiative with God and approach God and worship God, but we should be reminded, reminded that God's the one who determines how we are to approach Him. God's the one who determines the way in which we are to worship Him. And then, having seized the initiative back from David, in verse 8, he begins to instruct David through Nathan. And the first thing he does, he reminds David of the past. If you look at verse 8, he says, Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture. David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of all his brothers, and God took him from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will, and then he goes on to say some other things. But first he rehearses the history. He says, what did I do for you, David? Remember where you came from. He says, you were a shepherd boy. I took you from the pasture. You were following sheep. 
and now you're leading my people. And I did that. And then he says, that's what I did. And then he says what he would do. Did you notice as I was reading all of the I wills? I wills. Look at verse 9. The second part of verse 9. He starts. And let's look at all the I wills here. He says first, I will make for you, what's it say? A great name. Have we heard that before? We've heard that in the case of Abraham. Do you remember that? He says, I will make your name great. And now he's bringing this promise up to date and he's saying, David, I will make your name great. Um, Later on, we actually find that David uh, did something to make a name for himself. So he forgot who is supposed to make the name great. God says, I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And then verse 10, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. If we think about that uh, promise back in Deuteronomy 12, he says, I will give you a place. And here he says it again. I will appoint a place, the same word, place, for my people Israel. And I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and not be disturbed any longer. And violent men shall not afflict them no more as formerly from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And then he says, uh, middle of verse 11, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And then still in verse 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. You see how he turned the tables here? And it's a play on words in Hebrew, and it's a play on words that works well in English too. David wanted to build what? He wanted to build a house. He wanted to build a structure for the Lord. And first God says, You will build me a house? And now he turns it around and says, on the contrary, David, I will build you a house. In what sense a house? David already has a house. So he's not talking about a physical structure. He's talking about a dynasty. And we talk about that, that to this day. We have the, the, the house of Hanover or uh, the house of this or that, that royal, royal house. And that's the way he's using this word. He says, David, you're talking about building me a structure. I'm going to do something even greater for you. I am going to build for you a house. And then he goes on and talks about that. Verse 12, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. And this word offspring, we've already seen it. We saw it in the case of Abraham. It's the word seed. You remember in the case of Abraham, he said, I will uh, bless you and I will bless all the earth in your seed, in your offspring. So there are many echoes of the covenant with Abraham here. He says, I will raise up an offspring for you after you have rested with your fathers. He will come from your own body. Does that sound familiar? Same thing he said to Abraham. He said, from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. Now the play on words again. Now he's talking once again about what? A physical structure. So he says, David, I will build you a dynasty. You will have an offspring. That offspring is the one who will build me a physical structure, a house. And he says then, I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom. The end of verse 13, for how long? Forever. Forever. So he's talking about an eternal dynasty dynasty here, a lasting dynasty for the offspring of David. 
And he says to in verse 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And then he says kind of ominously, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So he really not only turned the tables on David, but he upped the ante, didn't he? David was thinking of building him what? A building. And what does he promise David? An eternal dynasty that would last forever. Now what's the rest of the story? If we keep reading in the Old Testament, we find that David had many sons, and against the normal procedure, it wasn't the oldest son who inherited the throne. It was a younger son, and his name was Solomon. Now, uh, Solomon, it says in Chronicles, was a man of peace. He was a man of shalom. So Solomon, shalom... And he was the one who reigned over a golden age in Israel. He extended the borders of Israel to, to uh, dimensions that had never been seen before and uh, were only uh, accomplished one time after that, that large. And he built a magnificent house for God in Jerusalem. And this is all playing on words. So we have Solomon, and we have Shalom, and we have Jerusalem, the city of Shalom. And he's the man of Shalom. He is, reigns over a kingdom of Shalom, and he builds a house for God's name in the city of Shalom. He's the man of peace. He's the one who is there at the time when God says, Okay, the promises are fulfilled. You are living in peace. You are living in rest. I've fulfilled all the promises that I made to Abraham, that I made to my people Israel through Moses, and now it is time. Now it is time for a permanent structure. The man of peace will build it, not the man of war, which is what David was. So, Solomon, the great constructor, the great builder of the house of God in Jerusalem. But then if we keep reading... We find that Solomon was good at building other things too. He uh, had many women, hundreds of women, in fact, 300 wives and 700 mistresses. And those women were from different nations. And those women worshipped various gods. And so toward the end of his life, this one, who was the wisest man on the planet apparently at that time, this one who had built the house for God in Jerusalem, ended his days building altars for false deities, for false gods, to please all of his various women. And what did God promise to do? That if he committed iniquity, if the offspring of David committed iniquity, God said, I will discipline him. And if we keep reading, we find that that's exactly what happened. God disciplined Solomon's dynasty. And right after Solomon was gone, his son took the reins of power and his first official act, in his first official act, he lost 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. That was a start to his reign. So from the dynasty of David, God took away 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel and reduced their territory significantly. And then over the the next decades, he chipped away more and more and more. And eventually, eventually, 
took away the temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians. Took away Jerusalem, that city of peace. Took away the land from the people and took the the heirs of David's throne off of the throne and they didn't reign any longer. This um, is not quite how the Old Testament ends. It ends with a flicker of hope, but just a flicker. Because it ends with the people back in Jerusalem and they built a much more modest version of the temple and they didn't have a throne anymore, but they had uh, an heir of David who was serving as governor under the thumb of the uh, authorities far away. But this hardly seems in keeping with the promises. The promises were great and grand, and the promises were for a, for a, a dynasty that would last forever. And we get to the end of the Old Testament We don't have a dynasty anymore. We don't have land. We don't have a glorious temple. We don't have a throne. We don't have the David's David's heir reigning on the throne. What happened to these promises to David? Well, it's interesting to know what happened because even in the Old Testament, we find them scratching their heads and saying, what went wrong? What happened to these promises to David? Why is this not working out? Like it looked like it was going to work out in the time of Solomon. It looked like Solomon was going to to take things up and up and up, but but he crashed and burned, and the whole nation crashed and burned. And where are these promises that God had made to David? And we find the prophets wrestling with this question: What happened? And the answer that they gave is that God was going to do something even bigger than He had promised, even bigger than He had promised. And we have verses like in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 that say this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And then if you look, for example, many verses, but if you look at Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6, say something similar. They say, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. What's going on here in the prophets? There's thinking that maybe the the fulfillment is not exactly what we thought it was going to be. Maybe it's going to be even bigger than we possibly imagined. And they developed this expectation that the Messiah was going to be coming. And He would be a son of David. And He would be called, at the same time, Mighty God. And when Messiah would come, He would fulfill all those promises. He would take up the reign of David and continue forever and ever. Now, in uh, keeping... With these promises, we turn to the New Testament. And we find at the time of the New Testament that there was a lot of of anticipation that maybe Messiah was getting near because the Romans now were in control and they were under the thumb of the Romans and they, they knew that that wasn't right and they didn't have anyone reigning. 
And so, when Jesus came on the scene, He came into a period in which they were looking still for the Messiah. And we find in the New Testament that there is a great deal of emphasis on the fact that Jesus is the Son of David. Luke chapter 1, verse 32, for example, He will be great, and He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to Him the throne of His father David, and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of His kingdom there will be no end. Acts chapter 13 as well. Paul picks this up when he's preaching. Verses 22 and 23. Uh, And he says, "...and when he had removed him," that is, Saul, "...he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised." So what do we have in the New Testament? What happened to all these promises? In whom are all these promises going to be fulfilled? They're going to be fulfilled in Jesus. That's the answer of the New Testament. That's the answer of the enigma of the Old Testament. What went wrong and what what will happen so that, that these promises of God will be fulfilled. Now, notice that what God did was more, not less. What He did was He announced and inaugurated a kingdom that is not only over a little strip of land in the Middle East. It's not a small kingdom uh, on the land bridge between Asia and Africa that's always getting overrun by the big kingdoms in in the neighborhood. He inaugurated a kingdom that involves hundreds of millions of people this day and is in every nation of the earth. Is that more or less than He promised? Quite a bit more. more. And we need to remember something. We need to remember something. As we interpret Scripture and in our own lives, if God does more, He did not do less. If God does more, He did not do less. We forget that. Sometimes we forget that theologically. Over the last couple hundred years... And this kicked into overdrive when uh, the modern nation of Israel was reconstituted. But it started a couple hundred years ago. Uh, a new brand of theology that started putting a lot of emphasis on, on the reconstitution of the nation of Israel. And a lot of emphasis on, on the city of Jerusalem. And the, the rebuilding of the temple. And the, the reconstitution of the, the throne of David so that an heir of David could reign over a physical nation of Israel once again. What is that? That's putting things in reverse. That's going back down. If, if He has already done more, if He has already established a kingdom that, that goes from, from the rising of the sun to the setting of the sun, if it reaches hundreds of millions of people and it is in all the nations, then if we are placing our hopes in some sort of a kingdom that's going to be a tiny little kingdom reigning in the middle of the Middle East, we are going down, we are going backwards, and we are forgetting that God has already done more. But there are other ways to do that as well. And by the way, That's a dangerous scheme because it's similar to the scheme that the Jews had in their day uh, when Jesus showed up. Do you know why many Jews missed Jesus? Because they were looking for something less rather than something more. They were looking for that re-established kingdom in the Middle East. And because that's what they were looking for, another King David, another warrior, they missed the king when he came. And we don't want to be guilty of doing the same. 
looking for less and, the, and missing the King that God has given to us. But there are other ways, and more commonly and less theologically, then we can miss the greatness of what God is doing in King Jesus. And that is by being fixated on little fleeting pleasures and powers that we can accumulate in this life. And this happens all the time. We miss the greatness of what really going on in the world and of what God is doing in the world through King Jesus. And we focus on accumulating a little bit of power and a little bit of wealth and a little bit of pleasure and a little bit of influence and we trade away the greatness of the kingdom for a little bit of something or another. This explains the, the great attraction, the great attraction of the, the so-called prosperity gospel which is really not a gospel at all. It's not really good news. But the so-called prosperity gospel, you've, you've probably seen this, the health and wealth gospel. What's the, the promise here? The promise is health on this earth. The promise is wealth on this earth. That's going back down the hill, folks. That's looking for little things rather than the big thing that God is doing. We also see this kind of embarrassingly when we get so easily co-opted by politicians who are looking for votes. And they come looking for votes and we get a, we get a photo op, we get a selfie with the politician and we think, now we've arrived. Now we have influence with the mayor, with the governor, with the commissioner, with the president. And what are we thinking about? Some little exercise of power that's going to evaporate immediately. Rather than the power of the one who said, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples where? Of all the nations. John Calvin was a, one of the reformers back uh, during the Protestant Reformation. And I came across a sermon that he preached, what, 400 years ago or so, on this text. And I love what he said, because he talked about the ruin of Solomon. And he said the ruin of Solomon was necessary. It was necessary. And he'll explain why. But we could take that and expand it. Not only was the ruin of Solomon necessary, the ruin of the nation of Israel was necessary, and the ruin of every other enterprise is necessary. Why? This is what he says. He says, for otherwise, and he's saying, if Solomon's reign had just gone on from glory to glory, he says, for otherwise, we would have stopped short too quickly, since humans always seek their happiness here below. For although God lifts up our heads and holds us up, as it were by force, to make us consider the eternal kingdom, we continue to be poor beasts with our snouts stuck down in a decaying pasture. (laughs) You may not like that description of humanity, but I think it's pretty accurate, isn't it? God says, lift up your, your vision. See what I'm doing. And what do we do? We root around in a decaying pasture. We need to remember that the most important development today or this week or this year is not who won the midterm elections. It's not the contest between two presidents in Venezuela. It's not Britain crashing out of the European Union. It's not the Patriots getting yet another Super Bowl. It's not who might make the NBA playoffs. 
It's not who will win the the March Madness competition. It's not the soaring or the crashing of the stock market. None of these things are the big news of today or of any day. The big news is this, that Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. And what is He doing with that authority? Although you may not feel like it at this point in the history of the American church, I want you to know what He's doing. He is expanding His kingdom by leaps and bounds. And people are pouring into that kingdom from all over the globe. He is building His kingdom. And this is a kingdom that will never, ever diminish, that will never, ever pass away. That's the news of the day, folks. And the challenge for us, like Calvin said, is to get with the program. To align our lives with what's important in life. To align our values, to align our priorities with what God is doing in this world. And what's that? He's inaugurated His kingdom and He's building His kingdom. And that kingdom one day will be consummated because that kingdom is a kingdom that lasts forever. Let's pray. Our God, we, at least I have to admit that I'm a lot like Calvin describes. You call me to lift up my my vision to what's really going on, what's really important in the world. And I root around in some decaying pasture. Oh God, I pray that You would help us to to focus on what is really going on in the world, what's really happening, what You are doing, and what You've been doing for thousands of years, and that You will do until the kingdom is consummated, until it has reached all the nations, and drawn in people from every tribe and tongue and people and land. We pray, O God, for ourselves as a church that we would never lose sight of what You're doing. And I pray for each one of us that You would enable us to align our lives day by day with the kingdom that You have brought and the kingdom that You are bringing. And we pray, O God, that You would use even us so that Your kingdom would come and Your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.